You've heard of high net worth, but we're talking about high net purpose. We want to find out how entrepreneurs, global leaders in our network are allocating financial, human, and intellectual capital in pursuit of purpose. But more importantly, we want to understand the compromises, the paradoxes in their approaches, pitch decks, and philosophies. Welcome back to High Net Purpose. We're back with another fascinating guest on the show. Today, Dr. James Kinross, surgeon and senior lecturer at Imperial College London, joins us to discuss how he's dedicated his life purpose to not only saving lives, but transforming healthcare through pioneering research on the microbiome. Not only is he a doctor, but an author to his recently launched book, Dark Matter, The Science of the Microbiome, which delves into the benefits for our health, performance, and even the potential for a trillion dollar business. James, welcome to High Net Purpose. Thank you for having me. Uh, we are absolutely privileged to have you along today. I always feel slightly like we're taking you away from surgery or something by having you not in the no. hospital. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Don't worry. This morning, we're in control. And um, are you Dr. James Kinross or Mr. James Kinross? It's... Well, to you, Joe. Yes. I'm Dr. Okay. <laughs> to everyone else, I'm James. Okay. It's kind of a weird thing. It's an anomaly. I'm a surgeon. Well, I've changed as a medical doctor, and then I became a surgeon, so then I became a mister. Yeah. And I got a PhD, and then I went back to being a doctor. So it's all a bit of a mess. Um, but you, so you, you managed to do everything that you do, and also you've authored a book recently, Dark Matter, The New Science of the Microbiome. Um, you run a research team. Uh, you're a visiting uh, professor I have, at yeah. World College Surgeons in, in, in Ireland as well. Yeah. How do you do it all? Um... Well, you just have to stop sleeping. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, and then you have to be really interested and really love what you do. That's the second thing. The yeah. third thing is you've got to be surrounded by good people. So the way that you scale any endeavor is to ensure that you lead effectively and you have effective teams uh, built around you. Uh, and I'm really lucky I, I have that. It's taken a while to build some of them. Well, I'm lucky. When you train as a as a doctor, as a medic, do they actually train you to build scalable teams or is that something you have to evolve yourself? It's an interesting question. So I think in the NHS, when I started, yeah. absolutely not. It, yeah. was a, it was a survival of the fittest. But I think the NHS has adapted and now leadership and team training is very much built into the, the DNA because... The organization knows that if it's to succeed, it's got to have clinical leaders doing that work. In academia, again, they've tried to do that. They've tried to build leadership structures. And in fact, I was lucky enough to take part in several kind of leadership programs. But that is part of it. But I think very much it's either something, you know, you enjoy and you're good at or you don't. So I've gone off script already. We usually start with asking, you know, what what uh, uh, our guest purpose is. You're a cancer doctor. It seems like a... Why do you even need to ask that question? But um, uh, you you seem to have this wider perspective yeah. on a lot of what you're doing. You also do tech transfer in a variety of other areas. Is there anything that you've found that helps to unify the purpose of what you're doing that helps you direct you on a yeah. daily, weekly, monthly basis? So, yeah, there is. So the simple answer to that would be innovation. Innovation isn't a word I particularly like, but it probably best describes the, the sort of single strand that ties it all together. So in my clinical practice, what I'm interested in is 
trying to do my job better through the application of um, emerging technologies or, you know, theories to direct clinical care. And in my research practice, it's the same thing, trying to understand why and how we get diseases like cancer and trying to find new ways to prevent them from, from happening. Uh, and I suppose the other commonality that I have is, is that I'm quite neuroatypical, I think is probably the best way of putting it. Um, another way of saying it might be that I've got quite a big imagination. So yeah. my head sort of fizzes with ideas. And, and when you work in a, in a place like where I work, I work at Imperial College, it's a world top 10 university, I'm just surrounded by really smart people. Yeah, uh, you, there's just always something interesting to do and an interesting area to apply. So quite often in my career, I've made my career by being the only surgeon in the room. If I'm the only surgeon in the room full of super wow. smart scientists, then, then we can do something exciting. So, and you said it, yeah. it's innovation, it's not curing disease, it's not... It's, yeah, I mean, um, obviously that's a major motivation. Yeah, that's an unfair question. I, but no, yeah. no, 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 yeah. like I take a, you know, a yeah. real thrill out of it but you know well I suppose we'll get into the book in in a, in a minute but a major you know driver of my research is to stop people from needing surgery in the first place like yeah. surgery is an inherently dangerous and high-risk thing to have done and the majority of the people that I treat you know shouldn't be in my operating theater we should you know be preventing cancer from happening in the first place yeah and once you've spent a career looking after people who are critically unwell and doing big, horrible, mutilating operations on people that have serious complications and serious risks. You come to the conclusion it would just be much better if we didn't have to do this in the first place. And the NHS as, a, as, a, as, a, as an organisation understands that if it's to survive and to um, keep delivering high-quality care, it has to shift, shift to a, a preventative strategy. So I've known you for a number of years. You're an amazing human. You're hugely caring for, for, for other people. So right. I, I wanted to... To, you know, because when you started with the purpose of being around innovation, it almost sort of separates it from you as a human and, and what you do. That's amazing. Um, the book. Yeah. Um, why did you write the book and how did you find time to write the book? Because I, I, I yeah. believe you were you were penning some of it, sat in the hospital during COVID. So, um, I mean, I write for my job. I write sterile academic research papers that no one yeah. reads. And then I was asked to write some pieces for a news um, uh, startup, a news website. And those pieces were well received. And someone at that organization said, look, have you thought about writing science for the general public in a way that you can you know, communicate what you do? And I thought about it. And he asked me to write one article. And I accidentally wrote 20,000 words. And I realized that what I had was I, had, I felt like I had something to say. I felt yeah. like... I've been sitting on a series of ideas for about 20 years and those ideas maybe 20 years ago hadn't been fashionable or weren't, you know, perhaps, you know, something that the public was ready to hear, but now they are. And so the, the, I wrote that book because, yeah, I, I felt like these were important messages that could have an impact in people's lives. Hey, can we mention those guys at Tortoise? Yeah, sure. the, the, They were the guys, because we, we know them at Island Bridge, yeah. of course, and there's a, a great team there. And it's no, that, team. Brilliant guys. Um, James Harding's a good friend, and, and they're doing really good work. And if you haven't heard of them, their mission is slow news. So it's trying to understand the very fast-moving world we live in in a, in a more considered and detailed way, and that's to a degree what this book is. So you the ability to write. There was some things that you wanted to say, and then uh, Penguin picked you up to to publish um, yeah. uh, the book, and uh, and it's been a, a great success. Um, but your the story of, of what you wanted to 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 say in the book it changed a bit through COVID. Yeah, it changed totally. So I, I 
I mean, for anyone that's listening to this that has written a book, particularly a pop science book, um, it's it's really really painful, and I don't necessarily recommend. It. I mean, I've written this book. I've I've written this book four times wow. in the space of three years because um, communicating science is quite hard and. I, it took me a long time to realise that I wasn't writing this book for my peers. I was yeah. writing it for people that knew nothing about the science I was writing about and that it had to be communicated in a way that was palatable and interesting and funny and exciting. And 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 and, and to do that, you have to have your own voice. You have to speak in a way that's genuine and authentic. Yeah, That's not something that scientists genu- generally do. So it took me a long time to kind of understand that. And and of course, co- this is a book about bugs, right? And And a global pandemic that that kills you know six million people changes people's perspectives on bugs and therefore that book had to be written in the context and of course you know i'm a, you know i'm still although i'm a clinical academic i'm a frontline researcher you know we were we were flipping patients in itu and managing a, a crisis and that kind of set the book back and it also changed my view a little bit on what i wanted to say and how i wanted to say it so the um Microbiome, the science of the microbiome, it's a 20-year-old area of science. It's incredibly young, and it's probably only come into the fore with a wider population in the last couple of years. Could, could you, and it, you're specifically around the gut microbiome. Yeah. So I think like all things in science, if you, if you go and read the old papers, what you realize is that actually a lot of the old guys, they, they, they knew it, right? So I would, descri- I would describe it as a, as a rediscovery. We've always known that there were microbes yeah. well that's not true we've known that there are microbes in the gut there you know in, in large numbers since the 50s and 60s but it's only recently that we've had the tools to really mine it and understand in more detail precisely who's there and what they're doing and we're still on that discovery journey right so we still don't really know who's there yeah um and but what i think it has done is it, it's resonated with changes in people's perceptions of gut health and the importance of gut health to their overall health and development but also people's um, attitudes towards nutrition, diet, and 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 medicine, which has definitely undergone a revolution in that time. So it sort of fits into that narrative. So, uh, but as you go through the book, it just seems to be a lens into so many different areas that are so important today. So, if uh, if we maybe start with the um, the, the development as a human from the sure. early stage to um, us at our you yeah. know, still still young age today, yeah. but um, um, mm-hmm. uh, but the the there was a lot in there in how those uh, early um, during the gestation period for the moment for the child, how it can be impacted and through life. So could you give us a yeah. quick overview of those? I think you've got four stages you describe. So I, I'd actually take a step back beyond that as well. Yeah. So, so what I'm trying to do with this book is to get people to completely reappraise and rethink their relationship with microbes and to do that in a way which is beyond um, over oversimplified probiotic marketing. Yeah, we think about good and bad bugs. That's not what's happening. And actually, the basis of this, I think, probably before we get into the weeds, you kind yeah. of need to talk about what a microbiome is. Yes, please. Yeah. Okay. And what it does, right? Yeah. So, so, so a microbiome, in its kind of most simplistic sense, is a collection of all microscopic life forms. So that doesn't just mean bacteria. That means viruses and yeasts and parasites and all tiny little bugs. The normal things that they need to sustain themselves. But a microbiome has a couple of other kind of important factors to help you reach that definition. The first is, is that it's got a co-evolutionary basis. So what that means is that it was there before us and it's helped us evolve. And through that, it's got a really sophisticated symbiosis, right? Which means that it helps support lots of the functions that we need 
to be healthy. Now, some of them are really critical and some of them are less critical. Like you don't die every time you have a poo yeah. because, you know, like, you know, we don't need them to keep a heart beating. But nonetheless, there are other kind of sophisticated in, in, and, and, and important relationships. And the third thing is that those microbiome kind of relationships that we have are time specific and time dependent. And that's yeah. the question that you're asking. So the importance of that symbiotic relationship to us means different things at different times in our life scale. Okay. And probably the most important parts are at the very beginning of our lives and at the very end of our lives. And so when you're a gestating infant, and so when you're growing inside your mum's tongue, the maternal microbiome is signaling to you as you grow and gestate, and it's influencing um, aspects of your health which will impact for the duration of your lifespan. And similarly, when you're growing as a newborn infant from the minute that you're born, your microbiome also has to grow and develop. And that relationship as you both grow together becomes incredibly important in defining your risk of diseases that are non-communicable later in life. Okay, so just to underline, so the, so the types of things that it will impact in a, in a, in a, in a young child are, are what? It's... Well, so probably the most important thing to understand is that the microbiome influences your immune system. Yep. It influences the development of your immune system and how your immune system senses and interacts with the world around you. And, and if that's not programmed correctly, the implications are important for everything. Right? Yeah. And so that doesn't just mean um, allergies or uh, you know, immune-mediated diseases like eczema or asthma, which we're seeing a rapid global rise in yeah. prevalence of. But it also means things that you might attribute less frequently to a d disturbed immune system. So inflammatory bowel disease or chronic diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, or it might mean actually development uh, but developmental problems in the brain or in organ systems that we don't typically associate with bacteria. Yeah. So actually it can be very wide ranging. And that's why you see these associations with everything from autism spectrum conditions through to, you know, degenerative conditions of aging. So have we have we got strong link which, strong links between autoimmune diseases and autism and the microbiome, or is this, it's still at an early stage of research? So I would describe I so I just you know, for the yep. medics that are listening, I think you kind of under, uh, there's a bit of nuance in what you just said. You've got to yeah. pick it. So autism is not an autoimmune disease, absolutely not. Yeah. But but what we do know is that the, that autism has a changing prevalence that's becoming more common in the population, mm -hmm. and that we know that there is a gene environment interaction that defines your risk of it. So there are some genes that you are born with. There is a fami familial risk to it. You many people will understand that. Yeah. Of course, genes are important, but it's also the interaction of those genes with that environment. And what I'm saying in this book is that you shouldn't think of gene environment interactions in your risk of defining diseases that are non-communicable and chronic. You should think of gene environment microbiome interactions. And the reason the microbiome is so important is because just about everything that you come into contact with in the world around you goes through a microbe at some point, which yep. then in turn has an impact on your genome and how you experience your risk of disease. Everything. So uh, at the risk of jumping around a bit, do we yeah. want to talk about the in environment side? Because that, that seems to, you know, sure. you, you know, in, in the book, you, you talk about a experiencing an internal climate crisis. Yeah. Um, can you explain yeah. that? And then maybe maybe then we go back to stages of life. No, I think it's a good it's a good idea. It's a good suggestion. Um, so my stomach is rumbling because if it's really loud on the microphone, forgive me. <laughs> but um, it's my microphone calling me. Um, so, to kind of phrase the question a little bit more, what we are currently experiencing in the world today is an explosion of non-communicable chronic diseases that don't kill us, 
but trap us in a very expensive, unpleasant state of disability for many, many years. So you are seeing a global rise in cardiometabolic diseases, obesity. You're seeing a rise in some of the conditions I mentioned before, like asthma, allergy, atopy. Yeah, half of Europe will have an allergy by 2025, right? Why? Um, now, one theory is that this explosion of diseases is occurring because um, there is a slow and, well, not slow, actually, a rapid loss in important microbes that help educate our immune system and keep us healthy. And that loss has happened over a relatively short time frame in an evolutionary context, right? And what, because we keep things too clean? No, I don't think it is that. So there yeah. was an oral gut hygiene hypothesis that was kind of popular. It's not that we keep things too clean. It's that we have systematically destroyed all of those symbiotic microbes that we really need to maintain our health. And we've done that through a number of different kind of ways, right? So the first thing is that we've, um, at a population level, completely misused antibiotics. We haven't yeah. just used them in healthcare ineffectively or inappropriately. We've used them in farming and the way that we produce food because we've now got to feed 8 billion people, right? So antibiotics have allowed us to do that. And antibiotics are in everything and on everything, and you cannot escape it. The second thing is, is that we are completely dependent on drugs. So there are about 4 trillion doses of drugs given out every year in the world, which means that half the world every day is taking a medicine. And those medicines change your microbiome. The third thing is, is that we have a climate crisis. We have an external climate crisis, right? So we have a, we have a rapidly warming planet. And a lot of those in, industrial pollutants and drivers also affect the microbes that live within you. The next thing is we've got a dynamic global population that are moving around the planet. And that sometimes happens because of conflict. So conflict is a major um, force that shapes the, the human microbiome. Yeah. And then, of course, we've got, you know, other, other you know, big, societal changes. We have urbanized populations. We have a digitized population. That changes our social construct. It changes the way we have relationships. It changes ultimately the way that we um, share microbes. So changing sex lives, for example, has yeah. a huge impact on that. Right? And all of these things have happened since the Second World War. And what that means is our immune systems just haven't been able to catch up with it. So going through them just quickly again. So the first animal husbandry. So we are putting massive amounts yeah. Um, of antibiotics through the animals that we eat. Um, then the second grouping is that we're just giving out perhaps too many medicines, um, uh, but antibiotics are like key, aren't they? So, so antibiotics are a precious and extremely important medicine. Like I can't do my job without them. Yeah. Like if I don't have antibiotics, my patients are going to die. And by the way, the antibiotics are running out. Like we don't have them anymore. So half of all of the patients I operate on now before I've even touched them, are resistant to the only antibiotics I've got. Wow. You should be very frightened about the coming antimicrobial resistance catastrophe because it is a disaster. But what I'm also saying is that the global antimicrobial resistance burden is actually represented, it represents the total failure of our ability to properly manage our microbiomes and to optimize their health and their diversity and their ecosystems. So it's a biomarker of social failure. Okay. And you can go into urban populations and you can measure antimicrobial resistance densities in urban transport systems, or you can measure it anywhere, right? Yeah. Um, and but the good news is, is you can change that. You can do something about it. You can change policy. You can change, you know, um, you, can, you can create incentives within ind industry to try and develop new, more precise antibi antibiotic. You can educate. You can do something about it. We just choose not to. 
Okay. And then the third one was the climate change, and the fourth one was the actual movement of people on yeah. the planet the, the rate that we have today. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, again, these are overlapping things. Yeah. N nutrition and diet is extremely important. And nutrition and diet isn't just antibiotics. It's the fact we have a globalized, westernized, homogenous, bland, you know, ultra-processed food-dominant diet, which is just absolutely terrible for us. And we have very, very powerful uh, food lobbyists and food groups that are absolutely disincentivized to change anything at all. Like, why would they change? They're making trillions of dollars, and it's all, we are powerless against it. Okay. And so uh, early in life, are we then pre-programmed based on the microbiome that we inherit from our, our mum? Mm. And, uh, sort of. Okay. So to a degree, your microbiome is defined a little bit by your gene. So actually, yeah. when you get to an adult, your microbiome is relatively stable because because of that reason, right? Yeah. But yeah, you're, you're, there is debate actually as to whether or not we're really born sterile. Like when you're born into the world, whether you're really sterile at the point of birth or whether or not there might be low abundance microbes floating around inside us, don't really know. We don't think so. But delivery through the birth canal is the first time you really come into contact with bugs. And then the minute you're on your mum's breast and the minute you start to interact with the world around you, you start to be cultured, you start to you start to grow bugs. And breastfeeding is incredibly important because it has lots of lovely sugars in that that kind of causes a big super bloom of microbes in the developing gut. And we know that children, for example, that are born by cesarean section or children that, that are breastfed versus uh, formula fed have different microbiomes. And we know that that correlates with, you know, having worse chances of having chronic diseases later in life. But the problem is, is that it's not quite easy to unpick because we also know that children who are born a little bit earlier have uh, pr probably similar risks and that might be a more important factor but also children that are born earlier or born by cesarean section might be more likely to have antibiotics yeah these antibiotics become quite a big confounder in early life so um so as we go through life we can't really do that much to change it or are you saying we can no what i'm saying is is that you can really do a lot to change it in early life okay and what i'm saying is is that i'm actually saying a few things in this book i'm saying number one is that the maternal microbiome should be a basic human right Okay. Because if you don't protect it, and that's not enshrined in policy, and it's not enshrined in the way that we conceptualize it, you then disadvantage potentially those children for a lifetime of disease that becomes very difficult because it's so fundamental. The second thing I'm saying to you is that there are moments in your life where actually the microbiome is very open and susceptible to change, and that becomes very important. And one of those periods is probably between the age of birth and five, right, where, before it reaches like an adult construct. Okay. Uh, it also, you, you, you asked me a question at the beginning of this about like how the microbiome evolves with us as we change, right? As we age. Right? Yeah. So it changes dramatically between the age of birth and five. And then it's actually pretty stable in terms of its ecology until about the ages of 60 or 70. There's a little blip around puberty. And then, and then when you start to age, it starts to decay again. It starts to change. So as you hit later life, 70s, 80s, 90s, it becomes, it becomes much more vulnerable again. So uh, everything that we're sold about improving our microbiome and all the rest is mismarketed? It's or really it's... hard. Well, no, it's not. And there's an important distinction between that. And the first is, is that it's very hard to change your microbiome's ecology. So yeah. who is there, their relative abundances to each other. Like, you know, you don't just go from a desert to a rainforest by having yeah. a probiotic. That does not happen. Okay. And we've done these trials and we've done these studies. Like if you suddenly go to high fiber diet, you don't necessarily get super blooms of new bugs. Okay. But what you do get is a change in the functions of those bugs. So those bugs have great big engine rooms. They're like huge molecular powerhouses, and they can switch on their genes, and they can switch off their genes, and they start to produce lots of goodies that you really need to maintain your health. 
So the answer is, it's just the tools that we're using to measure those things don't really apply to a lot of the consumer diagnostics that are kind of out there in the market today. Uh, and you shouldn't be looking to see major changes in ecology necessarily. Okay. So we will get on to drug yeah. development in a bit, but the, um, so are we saying that the most socially disadvantaged as well, you know, through policy are, are, are at risk? And this is another policy yeah. issue around so, microphone. So, so, so people at the low socioeconomic end of the scale are much more likely to take antibiotics. They're much more likely to have a westernized diet because it's cheap, right? And so they're much more likely to have saturated fats, high proteins, low fiber. They're much more likely to take, you know, to take medicines and to take drugs. Um, but, it, but it doesn't mean that people who are wealthy are escaping this. They just have a difference yeah. in problems to deal with. Right? Yeah. So again, like if you look at um, the guys in Cork did some quite nice research on this, looking at populations of um, the traveler community in Ireland. Mm -hmm. So they have, they, they, they don't get, well, they are less likely to get conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, asthma, allergy, atopy, right? And they live in great big families and they have much more contact with animals and their microbiomes are really diverse. And, but at the same time, they do get, you know, diseases and the conditions of poverty. Right, so they don't escape. They they have their own health burden. It's just a different burden to someone who's at the other end of the social scale who can afford uh, to perhaps access healthcare in a different way. Okay, so um, one of the things I read is that you've been looking at why millennials have yeah. a risk of bowel cancer that's four times what it was in the fifties and sixties. Is that Correct. right? And is that maybe linked to the stuff we've just discussed in terms of yeah. the, the the different environment that they've grown up in? So so one of the big, one of the reasons, you asked me why I wrote this book, one of the reasons that I wrote this book was because I feel like young people are having to really deal with the short end of this particular stick, right? They are dealing with the consequences of 70 or 80 years of microbiome mismanagement, and they are experiencing that burden disproportionately. So that's in their mental health as much as their physical health. Now, cancer, I'm a cancer surgeon. We are seeing a you know an explosion in cancer in young people of the bowel. Uh, and as you mentioned, if you've got, you know, if you're a millennial, your risk of bowel cancer is four times that of my generation or someone born in the 60s and 70s. And the question is, well, why? Okay. This isn't just about earlier detection. This is something different that's happening. And the, and the answer is that we don't know for sure. And we're still working it out. However, what I'm proposing in this book is a theory. And my theory is, is that actually this is a generational, it's a multi-generational problem. Because the microbiome, the maternal microbiome is, is not being allowed to do its job properly, because the microbiome in early life is not allowed to construct itself properly, it can't deal with the environmental exposure it has to wrestle with in the next 20 to 30 years of a westernized diet, of a urbanized environment, of a antibiotic hit. And, and, the, and the net result of that is un, or dysregulated inflammation, and the net result of that is malignant transformation, it is cancer, it's cancer initiation. So you've got all this sort of causal association between a whole range of different things that the microbiome we think could be the missing key to a, an awful lot of this. So um, what, what can we do in terms of... Yeah. So, um, so when, the, when you're a researcher, quite often it's very, it's very easy to become obsessed by your own work. And yeah. when you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. The microbiome is really, really important. It's not everything. Yeah. It's just a huge missing piece of that engine unless you understand that you can't deliver what we're talking about which is precision healthcare so getting the right treatment to the right person at the right time or giving 
personalized prevention strategies that really, in a measured and targeted way, meaningfully reduce your risk of that disease? So the answer is, well, what can you do? Sorry, the question you asked me is, what can you do? Yeah. And this book really is a policy book. What I have specifically not written in this book is, you know, eat lots of kimchi and, you know, <laughs> take a probiotic every morning. I love kimchi. You should have it. Kefir is great. And there's a role for probiotics. But these are putting sticking plasters on a bigger problem. Yeah. Unless we stop systematically destroying the ecosystems and the biodiversity within us that we utterly rely on for health, we cannot prevent these problems. And kefir is not going to make it better. Mm. And a bit of high fiber is not going to make it better. And, you know, putting a patch on your arm and measuring your microbiome is not going to make it better. The only, so, so the microbiome is a tool for understanding how these factors that we've known for, you know, hundreds of years impact our health work. And it should help us design future healthcare policies that protect it optimize it and nurture it to prevent disease happening in the first place. So, um, so modern medicine perhaps is underplaying the, the role of microbiome. And yeah. in terms of trials for new drugs, the historic ways to do randomized, and then you've got two separate groups and see how they go. But the microbiome would say there's actually, there's a whole other yeah. edge so what, to so, this. So what I'm missing. arguing here is that modern medicine, modern science is fixated and deeply rooted in a 19th, 18th and 19th century way of thinking about microbes, right? And we've got particular constructs, but we generally bugs are bad, right? And yeah. if you want to prove how a bug causes a disease, there are some principles that we follow that are, that are basically out of date and outmoded and don't understand, or at least don't account for how the microbiome really causes diseases in the first place. And the microbiome, if you look at pharma development of new drugs and new medicines, has just been a huge blind spot. Like the drug companies have just not understood this until okay. very recently. And now they do. And now there is a gold rush to try and understand and to mine it. And so I'll give you an example because it's always best to give examples. So the best example I can give you is in the newer medicines that are engineering the immune system to target things like cancer. There's a particular class of drug called checkpoint inhibitors that... that you like full cells in the immune cell take the break off and attack the cancer okay it turns out that uh, you can take two genetically identical animals and they're bred to have the same gene mutations for the same type of cancer but they're grown or you know reared in different laboratories okay and then you give them the same drug and you would expect the same response because it's the same drug in the same gene mutation but lo and behold they behave completely differently well well why well they they behave differently because they've got different microbiomes and the microbiomes hold the key and pull the strings on the immune response to that drug. And the importance of that is that you can change the immune response of that drug by changing the microbiome. So therefore, the microbiome becomes an adjunct to medical therapy. And we're starting to see lots of trials that are leveraging it in that way. But it also means that you can start to offer nutritional and dietary advice in a really precise way okay. to improve the effect how drugs work. Because lots of foods are mediated by the microbiome. It also means that the microbiome becomes a target in its own right for drugs and that you can start to mine it to discover new medicines and new drugs. Um, in the book, chapter three, you refer to a trillion dollar product. That is the microbiome diagnostic business. Yeah. Um, can you give us a bit more insight on that? And also, could you also touch on the, on the UK? Because the UK has got some competitive advantage around this as well. So, so if 
if you take what I said to you at face value, which is that to understand why you get disease and how to treat it, you have to know something about the microbiome. It really means that you can't, you cannot take an, a, a drug to market safely and uh, have that drug be as effective as possible without a measure or knowledge of the microbiome. Okay. And it also means that you um, that it's there's a rich source of new drug targets and new therapies in their own right. But the microbiome, the value of the microbiome is that you can do something about it. You can change it. Uh, and we've got really big global healthcare problems at the moment. We've got an aging population. We've got an obese population. We've got declining fertility rates. We've got a mental health crisis, right, with no good solutions. And this petrifying uh, language you used earlier yeah. on around... Uh, Antimicrobial w resistance. Right? Yeah. And the microbiome offers you therapeutic options in all of those domains. And this book kind of lays it out there, right, as yeah. to why they might be there. And um, what example? What, what so an good? example might be like dementia. Yeah. Okay, so very interesting work demonstrating that the microbiome plays a really quite important role in defining your risk of dementia through gut-brain interactions. And okay. now we're starting to identify specific... Um, pathways through which that happens and if you know the pathway well you can make a drug weight loss another good example another good example might be um fertility actually can we just uh, yeah. just on the weight loss side so yeah. we, we've seen an explosion of these new therapies to COVID. yeah and it's uh it's yeah we've seen it in the, in the public market and share prices and stuff so that companies that have them and then yeah. big changes in how people are eating different foods and stuff off the back of it some yeah. of the um, high processed food groups seen actually a fall in sales even in the last quarter um, any view on that industry and, and, yeah, and how, think, does, how does that play into your world I think it's really dark and it really, really? upsets me okay because what it's doing it's it's saying we're not going to solve the problem we're just going to let people continue to eat shit and leave live unhealthy lives and when they get sick we're going to put them on a drug yeah is that really what we're saying as a society we know what the answer is. We're just not doing it. And also, if you look at the data that's coming out of those drug trials, actually, they've got a high side effect profile, and they're not a solution. Like, that drug's only been around for, you know, what, a year? Less than that? Yeah. And just, I promise you, just wait till the long-term data comes out. It's not going to be that straightforward. Because the supplies are running down? There's yeah. No, because, because, like, when you put a... The, the gut is a complex system. Yeah. Right? It, it's so sophisticated and nuanced and individualized. Yeah, And this idea that you're just going to knock down one pathway and it's not going to have a systems effect is, is very naive, right? And that's why these patients have such, you know, significant, um, significant risks of side effects. So, so, like, it's not a solution. Yeah. It's a sticking plaster. Yeah. And actually, what I'm saying is, is that the microbiome offers you a, a more, you know, sustainable solution for trying to improve gut health because, you know, it allows you to en enact better health care Um. You're talking about dementia, the gut-brain yeah. uh, interrelationship. Yeah. Um, uh, can you give us a bit more of that? I know we're, we're, we're moving into talking sure. to, to what what are some of the yeah. um, therapies that can come out, but could yeah. you just go into that? How, sure. how you know, we, we all sort of know like gut instinct, yeah. and uh, and is that all sort of, that's the hormonal system or something else, or, mm. uh, and, and how, uh, how, yeah. how concrete is this relationship? So I would describe, so concrete's an interesting word. Yeah. I would describe it as emerging and, you know, I think we've got really good animal data, really good sort of um, pilot data and cross-sectional data from human studies. But what we're really lacking is really good, robust, longitudinal studies and really good trials. So to answer your question, bug-brain interactions, 
extremely important in early life and development. Like your brain is super hungry. Like growing yeah. up, brain takes a lot of energy. Yeah. The microbiome gives a lot of that energy to allow it to happen. But it also programs the brain. And, and actually, the brain and the microbiome kind of develop in partnership. The brain communicates with the gut and the gut communicates with the brain. It's an absolute two-way conversation. And we're beginning to understand some of the ways through which it does that. And it does that through probably three main ways. The first yeah. way is it produces lots of small molecules and precursors for small molecules that can communicate with the brain. So some of those are, for example, precursors of neurotransmitters, so chemical signalers that go between neurons in the brain, right? The, the second way is that um, it has... Um, a gut hormonal access, so it yeah. can interact with the hormones that kind of manage stress and anxiety and these sorts of things. Um, and the third way is the immune system, right? So the immune system is the key to absolutely everything. The brain has its own immune system. It's got microglial cells, and, and but also it communicates directly with the gut through the vagus nerve, and the immune system is able to regulate how the brain works through the vagus nerve. And so these are kind of new and exciting pathways that are constantly being developed and explored. And every day we get a new paper that says, hey, there's something that we didn't know. Yeah. Right. So gut-brain interactions are real. Yeah. They are. They're a genuine thing. Um, but what we don't have at the moment is, let's say, a therapeutic strategy that says, okay, you can do this. Yeah. And what I'm arguing for is that that's why when my patients come to see me, if they've got something like IBS or sorry, irritable bowel syndrome or if they've got, you know, gut-related problems, actually working with a counselor is incredibly important. Because unless you manage your stress and your anxiety, you're not going to improve your gut health and vice versa. But it also means it might explain why things that we perhaps don't have a mechanism for work. So acupuncture, for example, or mindfulness, or, you know, yeah, and these sorts of things that many of my patients who are having really awful treatments absolutely swear by. I'm like, okay, we'll go and try it because that might be a mechanism through which it works. Because th that's been a, an accusation that there's not been a, enough holistic view of, of patients where, you know, they might be getting treated for a stomach issue, but they do have anxiety or other issues that are sort of linked to it. Yeah. There's, what about the nutritional dietary advice that doctors yeah. are trained on over the years? Um, you know, everyone's in hospitals, food is, you know, for, yeah. It's absolutely appalling. Um, so that really is the thing. And, and that's so, so nutritional diet is, again, like if you come to see me as a patient, you'll almost certainly get sent to see a dietitian. Okay. Because, because it's absolutely fundamental. Like what you put into the system obviously impacts on how that system works. And we're very bad at giving, particularly in hospitals, you know, advice that is evidence-based or structured or accounts for the microbiome. Almost no advice that we give accounts for the microbiome, and it's obviously really important. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, diet, diet's very, very important. You know, um, you might be about to ask me this, I don't know, but one of the things that we are interested in, though, is, like, how do you change the microbiome? So, okay, your mm -hmm. microbiome's not great. So what? Like, what am I going to do about that? Well, to do that, yeah, first of all, you've got to have some measure of it. The second thing is you've got to have some target. But sometimes you can't, and actually the, the only answer is to change the whole ecosystem. It's like okay. a full engine change, right? And that doesn't mean taking like a targeted therapy, like a probiotic or maybe even a prebiotic, which is a kind of type of sugar that, that bugs like. But actually it's about, uh, you know, a whole fecal transplantation. Can I, I knew that was going to come up. Oh, yeah, okay. Come on. Intestinal microbiome transportation, I think yeah. is the other name for it. Yeah, it IPT, which sounds better than fecal. Yeah, but can you maybe explain the pandas? Because I think that 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 helps All right. um, describe what's actually happening and okay. why so, it's not as and weird as it sounds. So so many animals, of course, you know, are coprophagic. So that means they eat poo. And yeah. that, your dog probably does it. And the yeah. he does gives you a big lick afterwards. Joe would have thought. Yep, Christy does it. <laughs> uh, um, which is why you should have a dog because it better up your microbiome. But 
Um, so, but many animals do that for really important reasons. So panda bears, for example, when a baby is born, the first thing that the mother will do is give it a big lump of its maternal poo to eat because it's got lots of the bugs that it needs to break down bamboo. Can't, yeah. can't metabolize the, its, its food without, without the, the bugs, right? And, and we don't do that in, uh, in, in humans for lots of really kind of important reasons. It's pretty gross. And, uh, you know, you can transfer pathogens. It can be as harmful as it is beneficial. And we don't need bugs to be transferred in the same way. Yeah. However, there are some patients who are just so sick and who are so unwell that actually the only option is to do a fecal transplant. And it is as gross as it sounds. And you do take literally feces from one human and put it into another. Yeah. There's a very specific process and mechanism. And actually, it's like having a transplant for any other organ. Like it, we, there's a safety profile that we have to go through. And we have found it to be extremely effective in a specific series of conditions. And that's nice approved. It's a, it's a real thing and it happens. It's, it's a real thing. thing. Well, so I would take a slight step back from that. So yeah. fecal transplantation has been a tool that we have used to understand the microbiome. So we've used it experimentally for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, if you go back to, you know, the history of FMT, it's been, you know, around f for 2000 years. The Chinese used to call it yellow soup and give it for the traveler's diary. Uh, it's, not, it only, it's only nice approved today for, uh, for a particular type of hospital acquired infection okay. called, called, called Clostridium difficile. And we have lots of experimental evidence in many other different clinical conditions that range from, um, you know, inflammatory bowel disease through to IBS, through to, you know, um, into um, hepatic encephalitis and a whole bunch of other conditions. So it's a real thing and okay. it does work. But it's also not just a treatment. It's an adjunct of medical care. So it also changes. You remember I was talking about those checkpoint inhibitors, the yep. drugs, right? Changes how those drugs work. So we've got a trial at Imperial where we were giving FMT with cancer drugs because it makes them more effective. And we want to, you know, generate an evidence base to prove that that's the case. Okay, so other areas of um, uh, of where medicines and can, can be crazy around what you're doing. Um, so we've obviously got health, um, personalized medicines. Uh, what, are, what are we looking at in your space? So what you're seeing is um, you're seeing microbiome targeted therapeutic yeah. uh, companies spin out now. And they are tending to work across four or five different domains. And I'll give you some examples. So obviously, there's a lot of work in next generation probiotics. So from the last 20 years of work, can we identify specific strains of bugs from those studies, find a way to grow them at, at an industrial scale and give them in a targeted way? So rather than taking lactobacillus strains or bifidobacteria strains, which are typically what you find in your average consumer probiotic, can we, can we give them as medicines and can we regulate them in a different way and give them in a targeted way? You're seeing similar evolutions in like prebiotic fibers and, and now postbiotic fibers. Okay, so sorry, postbiotic uh, therapies, not fibers. So these are you know, bits of bacteria, if you like, that have the, that have the, or, or, um, that have the biological effect or dead bacteria that have the biological effect. Okay. You're also seeing different components of the microbiome being leveraged as therapy. So we, today we basically talked about bacteria, but the, the virome is... To what, you know, it's enormous. It's absolutely enormous. I'm completely unmapped, by the way. I've got no idea what, what, who's there, what they're doing. That's why this book is called Dharma. But um, you're seeing viruses being engineered and targeted against bacteria. And, and there's a type of virus that infects bacteria called phage, and phage now being you know, engineered to do that. And we're also seeing bacteria themselves being engineered through a process of synthetic biology to switch yeah. on and de deliver drugs in the gut or to kill other bacteria or other kind of bugs in a very selective way okay so we've got drug delivery mechanisms in yeah. there as well exactly. um um i have to ask uh, sure. ai what, what what is is that going to change things and speed up 
uh, the research yeah, and create new everything. And of course yeah. it does, because because one of the problems that we have is that if you really want to understand a microbiome data set still, like in its in its in the most detail you can, you need a supercomputer. Yeah. And it's in it's overwhelmingly complicated. So AI is gonna have a huge impact. But again, like if if you want to understand nutrition, diet, microbiome interactions, the the system's complexity in trying to solve that is enormous. And AI suddenly makes that possible. But I think AI is also going to have a big impact on how we design and synthetically engineer microbes to do jobs that we need. And that's not just going to be in human healthcare, by the way. That's yeah. going to be in how we manage plastic consumption, plastic pollution, oil pollution. It's going to be in how we create renewable energies. It's going to be in absolutely everything that we do. It's yeah. going to be in the clothes that you wear, right? And so, so that's going to be a important part of going towards a sustainable future. But applications within your field, it seems like there's just a, a, a rich... Yeah. Um, so, so uh, yeah, it's it, it's a literal revolution because yeah. you can, as you've described, you can suddenly we can bind drugs to bugs, and we know that those bugs are going to get into the cancer or the disease that we're treating. We can we can design in the lab bugs to make drugs that we can't. You know, we what, what I don't need to make a drug in the in a laboratory or in a pharma lab. The bug will do it in you. So we can actually you know treat bacteria like computers and get them to compute tasks for us. Yeah, we can create sensors that um that that will that will emit light and will send wireless signals when they interact with certain conditions in the gut like blood so yeah the, the applications are absolutely limitless so we've talked about uh, impact on uh, drug trials then yeah. we, we we've talked about diagnostics then we've talked about um how it can be used for treatments and delivery yeah. mechanisms and how ai is going to accelerate yeah. um um the developments in the space and you clearly mapped out how the microbiome is connected to so many of these big themes that we have around um, health, um, uh, well-being, and society in many ways as well today. So, um, um, mentioned on the UK, but what, yeah. why does the United Kingdom have some competitive advantage in this space? So the UK um, has this glorious track record of creating and producing brilliant minds that do brilliant proprietary science, but then were absolutely terrible at scaling that into commercially okay. successful operations. And I think the microbiome is a good example of that. If you look at a lot of the early microbiome work, it was, you know, a lot of it was done in the UK and we just haven't been able to scale it as well as kind of some of our competitors. I think what you've got in the UK is a lot of um, uh, really good expertise in uh, microbiology, um, you know, we, we've got amazing um, um, sequencing expertise. We've got amazing bioinformatics and computational expertise. Um, and, you know, we've got an infrastructure that quite likes to bring these, you know, the, these things together. But we haven't got... But just on the infrastructure, yeah. so we've got databases here that are, you know, in terms of running AI uh, is incredibly useful. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that is correct. And we are doing that. We're just not doing it at the scale... With, and with a sense of ambition that we should be. Okay. I don't think that's because scientists don't have that sense of ambition or scale. It's because we just don't have the funding vehicles to do it. Right. That's why staying in the H20, um, staying in the EU funding mechanism is so important for us because that gives us that access to scale. But I think we just need we need that we need that level of ambition that you quite commonly see in the United States, for example. Yeah. Um, and we don't have a funding environment that really wants to. You know, front-load startups in the UK and and really get them to scale very quickly that we're seeing in the US. Okay, 
So, see, you've got the people, you've got data sources yeah. that are on parallel globally yeah. in the national database. Um, um, and you you talk to a lot of researchers yeah. in, in, in your seat, and I know a lot of them will be drawn to you because of your character and the, the ability that you have to, to communicate, et cetera. That was a joke. Um, <laughs> any, any, uh, anything that you're looking at at the moment that, that you would, uh, you, you mentioned a number of things, but is there anything uh, in terms of uh, research teams or development that yeah, my current sort of I, my current obsession is the is the is the developing gut, and okay. so I'm absolutely focused on on that. And we've got some really exciting data, you know, looking at looking at the evolving microbiome in in, in the gut and and how it influences your risk of chronic inflammatory diseases later in life. And I think the future of it is really going to be. And I'm picking that. I'm very excited about some of the work in vaginal microbiota transplantation because actually you're seeing really exciting pilot data suggesting that you can treat things like infertility. Okay. Right. And that to me is really important because, you know, we've got a global infertility crisis, a very, very interesting work happening in neurodegeneration. So conditions like Alzheimer's, you know, the question is whether we can really turn that into, into therapeutics that will really make a difference. Okay. Well, good, good luck with the teams that you're, you. that you're collaborating, uh, on this and on the tech transfer work that you do. Thank Again, you. don't know how you find the time to pull it all together. Um, uh, should we finish on your art collaboration? Yeah. What's that all about? Well, well, and so one of the nice things about writing a book is that you just get to meet loads of interesting people who do yeah. different things. And one of the things that I'm struggling to communicate is the scale and complexity of the microbiome and how it, it's so deeply in, intertwined in, in every aspect of our lives. It's everything everywhere all of the time. So I'm setting up a charity, and that charity is going to um, hopefully work with artists who who... Um, interest in communicating science to, to try and help me communicate this mission uh, for the microbiome. And what I'm really interested in doing is doing is doing that through data. So what we really want is people to send us their samples so we can sequence out their microbiome data and turn that as into an artistic installation in its own right to help people understand the scale of what we're really talking about. What does that look like? Um, I'm trying that's to... the fun bit. Like that's okay. what you need artists because I don't know, and you need someone who who thinks really, really differently to help you conceptualise that. So I've just met a couple of amazing artists who who make you know virtual reality immersive art, and I really want to work with them to do that. Um, and actually, I mean, look, I'm very lucky, as I mentioned at the top of this top of this chat. You know, I'm 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 a little unusual, I think, in my career because I I quite like the yeah. creative side of it, and many of my colleagues don't. <laughs> Or at least it doesn't interest them. So it's been something that I've been able to leverage in my career. Wow. Fanal, listen, thank you so much for the so, time. So fun to talk to you, Joe. The well. insights. You're an amazing human. Likewise. I appreciate so much that you do. And um, hope we get to follow up again yeah, in, in the future. I'll come back anytime. We can talk about surgery. We can talk about robots. We can talk about AI. There's loads of other stuff going on. Amazing. Thanks again, James. Thanks, Joe. Thank you for listening to High Net Purpose. To learn more and stay up to date, you can follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at High Net Purpose. See you next time. All content on High Net Purpose is provided as general information only. It does not constitute any advice, recommendation or representation and is not intended to influence listeners or users into making any specific investments or any other decisions. Please be aware that guests and presenters on High Net Purpose may have investments in any of the topics or products being discussed. Their views and opinions are their own and should not be taken as endorsements or financial advice. Before making any investment or financial decisions, we strongly recommend seeking advice from a qualified financial professional.